Welcome to the TCW Investment Perspectives Podcast. I'm Anisha Goodley, Portfolio Specialist for TCW's Emerging Markets Group in Los Angeles. Today we're here to discuss China. So much has changed in China since we last visited pre-pandemic, so we're going to dive right into some of the key observations on China's growth, U.S.-China and China-Taiwan relations, and potential risks at hand. Joining me is David Levenger, who is a sovereign research analyst for the TCW Emerging Markets Group covering the Asia region. Dave is a highly experienced China expert, having previously been the U.S. Treasury Department's Senior Coordinator for China Affairs and the U.S.-China Strategic and Economic Dialogue, as well as Minister Counselor for Financial Affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. Dave, thanks so much for joining us today to share your thoughts. Thanks, Anisha. Great to be here. So I want to jump right in. This has been your first trip back to China in three and a half years, and a lot has changed in the world since then. So can we just kick off with what were some of your broad observations? What was it like? I know you've been going to the region, living in the region for many years as well. So t- tell us a little bit more about just your, you know, this first visit back. Yeah, so it was great uh, to be back. And it, it's so important. China has become more and more important to markets, not just, you know, for the investments we have in China, but investments uh, we have globally. And it's become more opaque. You know, first it kind of closed itself off from the rest of the world for three years. Uh, It's kicked out a lot of the journalists. And, you know, you realize like the media coverage you get in the U.S., including on business and financial issues, is just pretty limited. Uh, So the kind of conversations you have person to person in China are just not the kind of conversations you're going to have on a Zoom, even if the Chinese are doing Zooms uh, anymore. And it's it's really the best way to learn about what's going on. That's a really big shift. I mean, how do you really think about, you know, you know, China is really an anchor in many ways for emerging markets, pretty strong recovery. How do you assess China? How do you think about the short term outlook and, and getting the information that you need? Yeah. So, you know, it was interesting talking to folks and getting a very different sense about the short term and the long term. Um, I think everybody agrees uh, that we're going to see a very strong uh, recovery uh, this year, at least for several quarters. Um, And it's going to be a a recovery with very little uh, inflation. Uh, The exit from COVID uh, has turned out a lot better than many Chinese feared. And, you know, you can just see that they are done with COVID. Uh, they want to get out. They want to go to bars and restaurants and sporting events. And so what you have going on right now is kind of unleashing of pent-up demand uh, from people that have been either locked down or had the threat of lockdowns hanging over their head. And you've got a recovery of supply chains. Uh, We saw very strong first quarter uh, growth numbers uh, coming out this week. I think they will easily surpass their 5% growth target, easily 5.5%. I think we could even see a 6% handle. Uh, You know, we are forecasting that China alone will account for about 40% of global growth this year. 
Dave, I want to delve in a little bit on what you said in terms of your strong conviction about Chinese growth and the recovery, which is just, again, a really important anchor for emerging markets. And I read somewhere that the differential between EM growth and DM growth is forecast to be the highest that it's been in the last decade. But can we also just talk a little bit about what that growth looks like? You know, you pointed to what the population is doing. They're going to bars, they're going to restaurants. It's local. So how do you think about the overall impact to emerging markets? Yeah, Anissa, that's an important point. We're seeing a very robust recovery, but it's going to be a different kind of recovery than we're used to uh, seeing in China in the past. This one is going to be led by consumption uh, and services. It's going to be, you know, less led by the property sector. And therefore, I think, you know, it'll be less important commodity intensive uh, from what we've seen in the past. Though I should say, while the data's mixed, there is rising optimism that we'll at least see a stabilization of the property sector. And, you know, after the last year or so, that by itself, given how important the property sector is to China, even if it just stabilizes, should eliminate a major drag on growth. So, Dave, let me let me ask you another question, though, because you have this, uh, you know, more constructive view on the short term outlook. But what do you think about the long term? A lot of this recovery this year is a bounce back from pretty weak growth last year. So how do you think about Chinese growth in the long term? Anisha, it's really interesting, the different perspectives I got from the Beijing crowd and the Hong Kong crowd in Beijing. People were much more cautious looking at the longer term business and consumer confidence is recovering, but from very low levels. And households were hit pretty hard during COVID. Chinese households got a lot less fiscal support than we did in the US. They took on a lot more debt and the price of their biggest asset, their house certainly is no longer going up and in many cases is going down. Private businesses, you know, after going through trade wars, lockdowns, regulatory storms, sanctions, and geopolitical tensions are also cautious. The new leadership is trying very hard to convince business that it's market friendly. But I guess the three words I heard the most in Beijing was wait and see, in a sense that actions will speak a lot louder than words. And they really want to see what the new leadership team is going to do. And issue. let me just jump in for one okay. second on that, on that new leadership. You know, is that new leadership at the top? And then what about the local governments? How are you, th- you know, what's, is there, um, I mean, are those messages consistent or? Uh, they largely are. And I do have to say, you know, a lot of analysts wanted to give the new leadership team the benefit of the doubt. Uh, President Xi has moved away from collective leadership. He's put all his guys and the sad fact is it's mostly guys uh, in China. Uh, he's put his guys in place. But there was a sense of maybe he'll listen more to people if he feels like they don't have a competing political agenda. And, you know, the other big issue that kept coming up was debt. And in some ways, Chinese growth has always been about, you know, who's willing to take on mm-hmm. more debt. And there's a sense that China's, you know, running out of room. Households are tapped out. Businesses are cautious. And particularly local governments 
um, are uh, their finances are very stressed. They had to take on a lot of the COVID spending for things like testing and their main source of financing, which is land sales, pretty much dried up uh, last year. Um, so I think this debt overhang is going to be a drag on growth. I don't see kind of debt issues in China leading uh, to some kind of financial crisis, but it you know it's going to keep household and business sentiment cautious. Well, let me let me ask you a little bit more about that last statement in terms of you know I think we can understand you know debt overhang results in a growth drag. But then, you know, you know that we get a lot of questions about whether China is investable because China in some ways, in many ways, actually does offer growth. So can you tie that last statement to what may be some growth opportunities in some of these individual sectors? Yeah. So that, you know, that gets me to Hong Kong, where I felt like people were a lot more bullish. And I think some of this may have been because, you know, people in Hong Kong, they're going to places like Shanghai and Shenzhen. And I think the farther away you get from kind of the politics in Beijing, the more optimistic people seem. Uh, People in Hong Kong are very bold up on all the money that's going to kind of new strategic and priority sectors, things like semiconductors, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, actually the whole EV uh, supply chain uh, and other green technology there was also, you know, people in Beijing were kind of more pessimistic about the direction of U.S.-China relations. I'd say people in Hong Kong thought that Chinese businesses and actually foreign businesses have been pretty adept at shifting supply chains just enough to get around a lot of these uh, sanctions and tariffs. That's interesting. And actually, Let's talk a little bit more about U.S.-China relations. And so, you know, you think about trading partners. The U.S. is a major trading partner of, of China. Europe is a major trading partner of China. So if these relations relations continue to get worse, how do you think about growth for China? But also, how do you just in general think about uh, DM and China relations? Yeah, so this is clearly uh, a risk. And, you know, there was not a lot of optimism uh, in China over both the state of U.S.-China relations, uh, but the outlook. A number of people characterize relations as being, you know, the worst since Nixon went to China in 1972. And I think a lot of people were surprised uh, by the balloon incident and just how it highlighted the inability of the two countries to manage uh, tension. And there's a feeling that we're kind of in this spiral where, you know, one side does something that confirms the worst narrative of the other side, and then the other side reacts in a way that confirms the worst narrative of, you know, the first side. And you see it in a hardening of public attitudes. You know, I think you research just uh, came out with a survey just a week or two ago showing that negative views of China and the U.S. you know, have gotten higher. And I think 80% of Americans have a negative view of China. The view of the U.S. and China is similarly negative. I think media coverage in both countries uh, is very negative. It's interesting, when I was there, the TikTok te- hearing in the U.S. Congress went viral in China. 
And in many ways, you know, both sides seem to be kind of given up on cooperation. And this is risks for investors. You know, if they're not talking, it reduces their ability to manage risks. Yeah, I expect. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I think that that's, yeah. I think that's such an important point because everyone seems to be spying on everyone. You know, these balloons were not new. We were aware of them, it seems like, right? But because of some of this mis- lack of communication, things are misinterpreted. And does that mean that there could be a bigger mistake down the road because of this misinterpretation? Well, obviously, there probably will be bigger risks than a balloon being blown off course <laughs> right. by wind. Right. You know, we have ships and planes, you know, coming in pretty close contact. And there's always a risk of an accident. Obviously, the biggest risk of all is Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's an, imp- I think the risk is low, but it's not negligible and it's rising. I still think after amassing more power than anybody since Mao, it would be a very risky move by Xi to try and go after uh, Taiwan. Certainly after Russia, he can't be confident that China could win. And if China lost, it would not only bring about a change of leadership, it would probably bring about a change of regime. I do have to say I was pleased by Tsai's visit to the U.S. I think it showed that particularly in Taiwan, but also in the U.S. and in China, and I saw China's reaction to Tsai's visit, you know, they all kind of saw risks in escalating this issue further uh, right now. So I think it was very good that McCarthy did not go to Taiwan and Tsai came to the U.S. Thanks, Dave. So as an extension of this, you know, China has seen what's happened in Russia. What do you see as the China-Russia relationship? And do you, what do you think about the risk of China sending Russia weapons? And what does that mean for China-U.S. relations? Yeah, so it's a good reminder that there's plenty of other risks, you know, other than Taiwan. You know, I think what China sees in Russia, and, you know, in some ways this is the fundamental tension between the U.S. and China that would exist, you know, even if there wasn't a Taiwan is China sees a global economic and financial system that's led uh, by the U.S., and they've seen a weaponization of that system, and they've seen the U.S. turn more towards a position uh, where they don't see a space for China in this system. The U.S. increasingly sees China a threat uh, to the system that we created Uh, after the Second World War and has delivered a lot of growth and prosperity uh, to the world. Dave, those are all really important points and risks to keep in mind. I want to conclude and circle back to our original question. Based on everything you've said, you've talked about growth, you've talked about risks, you've talked about U.S.-China relations. Is China investable? You know, the way I think about it is, are there risks? All the risks we've talked about, yes, there are risks. But can you be compensated for risks? And I'd say it depends on the asset class, depends on the circumstances. What China offers is growth, certainly in rates and foreign exchange, low volatility and very liquid markets. You know, there are risks in China, but China offers a way to diversify away from other risks. 
And what concerns me is when people say they don't want any allocation to China is then, okay, you know, they're not taking on China risk, but they're investing in other taken on other risks. You think about, you know, some of the most volatile assets in last year were long-term uh, U.S. treasuries. So, you know, always be cognizant about the risk that you're taking. Uh, the last thing I'll say is China offers a way to invest uh, in the transition to a low-carbon economy. They have by far the largest green bond market in emerging markets. And if we are going to get to a sustainable global economy and meet, you know, our temperature, uh, global warming target, China has to be part of the solution. Thanks, Dave. All really important points, especially about differentiated growth opportunities in China. I want to thank you again for joining us today. This is, I always really enjoy our conversations on what's happening on the ground. I'm glad you were able to get back there after three and a half years. And I want to thank everyone for listening in today. Please feel free to reach out with any questions. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on TCW Investment Insights. For more insights from TCW, please visit tcw.com insights. This material is for general information purposes only and does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. TCW, its officers, directors, employees, or clients may have positions in securities or investments mentioned in this publication, which positions may change at any time without notice. While the information and statistical data contained herein are based on sources believed to be reliable, we do not represent that it is accurate and should not be relied on as such, or be the basis for an investment decision. The information contained herein may include preliminary information and or, quote, forward-looking statements, end quote. Due to numerous factors, actual events may differ substantially from those presented. TCW assumes no duty to update any forward-looking statements or opinions in this document. Any opinions expressed herein are current only as of the time made and are subject to change without notice. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.